Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. My name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm just kind of tickled by this sermon text today. It's awfully nasty, just as a heads up. It's got pretty much everything that you don't want to see in a movie. Uh, it's got sex, drunkenness, violence, uh, but here we are in the Bible. So we'll talk about it, but just kind of put your helmets on. It's got a little something for everybody this morning. Uh, y'all ever seen the movie Groundhog Day? I would argue Groundhog Day, top three films all time. Um, personally, I think it's one of the clearest pictures of life apart from Christ and the redeeming power of sacrificial love. To, but if you've been with us for a few weeks now, um, the book of Daniel can kind of feel like Groundhog Day because here's basically what's been happening the last three weeks. And we get to basically preach the same sermon over and over again. A king is puffed up with his pride. He has a dream or some kind of weird supernatural thing happens. Daniel comes in, bails him out. He turns and worships God. Uh, from chapter 4 to chapter 5 here, there's several nasty assassinations that have happened. Uh, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 of Daniel get really confusing with history and places and geography and names. There's a there's a great commentary out there that if you're interested in that kind of stuff, you can go read about that. But what's important to know for this sermon uh, on the How We Grow Wall, sorry, you can go buy a commentary that will explain the history, and it's super interesting. But from four to five, there's been a chunk of time and a lot of death to get us to a new king who's on the throne. So if, just as a quick recap of the vibe of Babylon, where we are here, we started with a king who had a dream about a statue. Daniel interpreted it and said, you know, the kingdom of God is going to destroy all the kingdoms of this world. And you remember what that king did in response to that dream? Anybody remember? He built a statue, right? He built it and you're like, oh my gosh, what is happening with these people? Another king had a crazy dream about tree, a tree and his pride. And he's warned that he'll be sent out into the wilderness like a madman. He looks at how wonderful his city is and says, no, I'm really awesome. Goes out into the wilderness like a madman, eats cow or eats grass like a cow. And... Eventually, years later, comes and worships the living God. The next king. So here we are now. There's been several assassinations, like I said, between that king and this king. And shocker, Groundhog Day. He's puffed up with pride, full of himself, and doing craziness. This new king's name is Belshazzar. Verse 2 said that there were a thousand nobles there. So I, I want you to turn your imaginations on here for a second and... If there's a thousand, you know, these are a thousand executives, a thousand people you want to impress, surely they're bringing a spouse or maybe an important kid or some servants. So just in your mind, how many bottles of wine do you need to buy to throw a party for a thousand people that probably lasted several weeks? It's a lot of hooch, right? There's a lot of juice. And how many cows do you need to kill to make sure everybody gets a steak for a couple of weeks? How many, I don't, you get the image, right? A gigantic party. Thousands of people are there. It says that he had the relics brought out from Jerusalem. If you remember back in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar, who history knows as Nebuchadnezzar the Great, sacked the city of Jerusalem, stole all of these sacred relics from the temple, and they've just kind of been sitting back in the treasury. And now this guy says, hey, let's bring them out and use them for the party. And they use them. Uh, these these relics that were intended to be used for the worship of God, they used them to toast pagan gods and, and to get drunk. And it's tough for us to understand how incredibly offensive that would be for Jewish people, for the exiles living in that day, that these relics meant for the worship of God would be used 
by human hands at all, let alone to toast pagan gods. It's, it's overt spiritual defiance. This is one of the differences between Belshazzar and the other kings. Is he's, I mean, he's really in the face of God and God's people in a way that the others weren't. So then to top it all off, he brings all of his concubines out. And if you're like, I don't know what a concubine is, just think sex slave. Like this is a, a woman who is living in a part of the palace and her only purpose is to wait for the king to come out when he would like something from her. And if you have a party with thousands of men you're trying to impress and you have all of this wine, why are you bringing these women out? Like what, what is the goal that would happen in this room? And I, the point that I want you to see is this is a wild night wild several nights, and every step along the way, there's a perversion of God's design for human life in there. I mean, every step of the way. Wine isn't bad. Wine is not a sin. Wine is, God isn't like, oh my gosh, look at what they did with grapes, right? Like God knew what was going to happen with that. But to use it to get drunk, that's a perversion. But this gives us kind of a picture of what sin does, and we'll see this throughout the text this morning. The sin takes something good and distorts it and makes it bad. It's not as much like there's this sin monster who comes and dumps sin on you as much as sin will latch onto a good desire or a good thing and it'll twist it and pervert it and make it ugly and nasty. So wine is being used for drunkenness and any other things. Objects of worship that were used to bring praise to God, they're used to sin in getting drunk and to sin in celebrating false gods and then bragging about these hundreds of wives and concubines and bringing them in and doing who knows what. Everything about these nights, it's a, it's a gross celebration of sin and debauchery. This is King Belshazzar. Right? Welcome to Babylon. This is what we're living in. God has used this story uh, throughout history, and I pray he does it again this morning, to plead with his people to humble themselves while there is still time. If, if you've been coming through all of Daniel, there may be a temptation to feel like, didn't we cover this already? And to which we would say, that's what God's been saying for thousands of years, right? Like, didn't we cover this already? Will we be a people who listen or will we be a people who keep puffing ourselves up with pride? And the lesson for us this morning is so simple and yet it's just so difficult. It's, it's been the consistent message of the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. And I will give it to you the way the Apostle Peter gave it to us. So God says through Peter and then to us this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We've talked about pride now, it seems like, for several months. I mean, we talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about it through the book of Esther. Here we are talking about it again in the book of Daniel. It's a big deal. Pride is a big deal. And it comes from a very, I would say, vulnerable, precious place in the human soul. Like anytime you see something that happens to pretty much every human being ever, you should get a little bit curious about what's going on there. There have been very few people that at some point in life didn't feel that temptation towards self-reliance and an exaggerated sense of self-confidence. I can, I can pull this off. Why does everybody deal with pride? Have you ever met somebody with low self-esteem who is also really arrogant? I see them every morning, right? Like, Why does that happen? Why do people struggle with this? sense of pride, that feeling of, of self-sufficiency, that, that maybe compulsion towards self-reliance, I can handle this. I, I would argue that's an exaggerated emotion. 
What, it's, it's disproportionate. There's something good down there that is being twisted and exaggerated. So let me give you an example. It is not wrong to want to be good at your job. And it is not selfish or arrogant to be able to say honestly, I'm a good accountant or I'm a great welder. I'm a, I'm a good teacher. I'm a nationally recognized school of excellence principal. It's not sinful, proud, arrogant to be good at your job. Much the opposite. Like, I think Christians should aspire to be really... What, what would happen if people were like, I want to hire somebody from Sojourn because I know they'll be good at their job and they'll work hard and they'll be a great employee. It's not wrong to want to be good at your job. And it's not wrong to acknowledge you are good at your job. But if the company starts going sideways and you feel like I have to... I have to do more. I've got to create more. I've got to carry more. I've got to fix this. No one else understands what's happening here but me, and I have to fix this. You ever know somebody who got stuck working for six bad bosses in a row? Do you know what I mean? Like every time they get a job, I'm like, man, this manager's an idiot. They don't know how to run this company. I'm the only one here who knows if it wasn't for me. And I would just say, if, if you've found yourself working for six bad companies in a row, especially if they're good companies, you know, like, no one at Honda knows what they're doing. Or, you know, these idiots at Toyota are just... <laughs> I would, that's pride, right? Thinking you're the only one who has it figured out. What is, where does this come from? I believe that the sin of pride comes from a soul longing to feel safe and significant. Safe and significant. Like you're going to be okay and like you matter. It's not selfish or sinful to want to have a, a meaningful life. You ever notice that, as far as I know, unless severely ill people, like mentally ill, I've never met someone who's like, I hope to have a very unsatisfying, uh, forgettable life that makes no impact on the world around me or the people around me. Pick any race, any culture, any nationality. Everybody wants to have a life that feels like it's meaningful. And there's some branches of the church and some branches of religion that will say, how selfish of you for that. And I would say, how human of you for that. Like, you were made to feel safe and significant. And just like a, a quick apologetic, if you're like, what are you talking about? That sounds like psychobabble. You were made in the image of God, which if it means anything, it means you have an infinite fire of infinite worth burning inside of you, meant to reflect the creator God who holds the whole thing together. I don't know what all it means that you're made in the image of God, but there are some ways that you are profoundly like Him. And when you see every human feeling the same way, that should tell us something about what it means to be made in the image of God. And so my, my point is, if you don't feel significant and you don't feel safe, you will not be able to stand under life's pressures and fears. You will do something to feel important and safe. And if that if that need is not met by something good, true, and beautiful, in all likelihood, you will do something very foolish and very destructive to feel significant and safe. So, let's go back to the crazy night. Do you know what the craziest part about this night is? It's not the drinking. It's not the fooling around. It's not the sacred relics. It's the fact that outside the city walls, as this is happening, we are in the middle of a two-year-long siege by the Persian army. There are people in the streets, scared and literally starving, while they're partying in the palace. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of troops 
bent on the destruction of Babylon, sitting outside of these walls, while the king and his men are inside celebrating. Our walls are tall, the river's wide, let's get drunk and fool around because we're so safe. The craziness of this party, it, it's an over-the-top over response to the fear they have of what's waiting for them outside the walls. So they become blasphemous, adulterous, drunken fools. And before we go on, I just hope you can see, I hope we can agree together, at least in our, in our own spirits, that this is what pride does. It clouds our vision. It distorts reality. And, and eventually we make awful decisions that put our lives at risk. You, we've got hours of sermons on this over the last few months that you can go back and listen to. Pride is a perilous, slippery slope that will catch up with you eventually. And, and what I really want you to see is that underneath that pride, there is a good desire that's being distorted. The only way out of pride and the blindness that comes from it is to find deep satisfaction, deep safety, deep significance somewhere, somewhere that can hold it. But Belshazzar would not and suddenly a hand appears in the middle of the party. Verse 5. Suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. This verse is um, it's one of the times that makes it a lot of fun to be a pastor. Uh, so look at this. I love, I just love the Bible. There's all these oddities that make it so lovable week in and week out. Uh, I saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the wall. It's like, well, what else would be writing? Like the fingers of a human hand. You know what I mean? Not just a hand, but the fingers. I don't know why he said that. What did it look like? It looked like a hand, I guess. Where did it come? I don't know, guys. I don't know. It's a hand. And there it is. And it says, so this phrase, his knees knocked together. <laughs> I don't know Aramaic, okay? I'm not that smart, but the commentators do. And this phrase, knees knocked together, so this ch ch section of Daniel's written in not English, and in the, in the English that it's, in the language that it's written in, it's um, an idiom or, or a euphemism, you know, like the phrase, uh, it's raining cats and dogs. Nobody actually thinks cats and dogs are falling from the sky. Uh, so there's this phrase here, knees knocked together, which means really, really scared. The, what the words literally say are... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's funny. Uh, it literally means the knots of his loins were loosed. Um, so if you don't know what a loin is, I'm not going to explain it to you right now, okay? What happened? Well, you're filled with the Spirit of God. Let him interpret the verse for you, right? Like Something in him was knotted up, and he got so scared, it went loose, Okay? And so now, so he turned white as a ghost, and then he loosed himself, and <laughs> called, I'm sorry, can you imagine this scene? Everybody partying, and who knows what's going on, the hand shows up, and there's the king, right? And he calls for his astrologers, and like, we don't know, I, nobody, nobody can read it. Um, 
pretty sure it's just words written in Aramaic, and nobody knew that, that language. And so everybody's freaking out. The king's, king's obviously freaking out. And then an elderly woman comes up on the stage. The, the text calls her the queen mother. We're not precisely sure who this is. You can go, again, read the commentary for all the theories and stuff. My guess is that this is Nebuchadnezzar the Great's wife. So that's Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel chapter 1, who went and got all that stuff. And so she's still present in the kingdom, probably the most respected, influential, powerful woman in the kingdom. And in essence, she says to him, listen, man, there's this dude named Daniel. And there's an interesting play on words about Daniel can untie knots that nobody else can untie. You know, like he's the one who can figure this out. And he's been doing it for generations. Uh, So Daniel is summoned and in comes Daniel. And now, you know, we're talking about the lion's den pretty soon, and it's tempting to think about Daniel as this like strapping young man with his sword and all of his courage. He's an elderly man at this point. I don't know exactly, I'm going to say 81 years old, right? He's, he's old, and he's been in the same position for 40-some years as the chief magi or some, at least some advisor. He's respected enough and been around enough that this Queen Mother knows Daniel is the guy you want to talk to. So he's summoned, and again, Belshazzar is the twice-scared king. He's got a double dip of fear in this experience, and when Daniel comes, he doubles down on his pride. He's, he hasn't humbled himself. He hasn't softened at all, and I just want to point out a couple of quick things. In verse 13, uh, he says to Daniel, where are we here? Um, he says, are you Daniel? one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor? Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles from 40, 50 years ago? You're this older man who served our kingdom faithfully for 40 plus years, saved multiple kings. And who, oh, it's just the little exile boy. You're that little Jewish boy, aren't you? Do you see the racism there? He's taking a shot at this guy who's from across the tracks. It doesn't matter what he's done. It doesn't matter how he's served. He's still that little Jewish boy that we took as prisoner. Oh, are you going to come help me, boy? Are you here to help me? You see the dig he's taking there? And then remember, he, there, it's in the history books that Daniel has served and bailed out multiple kings to the point where the most respected woman in the country is saying, you have to talk to Daniel. And this is... It's just a snippet of what he says to him after this in verse 14. He says, I've heard that you have insight, or you have the spirit of the God with God's within you. You're filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. He doesn't say, I really need your help. I've read the history books of what he's like, hey, I've heard you might be good at this. You know, could you give me a quote on what it would cost? There's a rumor going around that you might be, I don't know. And again, this is a king who's in dirty clothes. You understand what I'm saying? Let the reader understand. He's white as a ghost, and he's still taking shots at Daniel. Forty years of service. Forty years of saving kings. And he's skeptical. And if you're Daniel, in their party that says, how many of you people do I have to bail out? How many times do I have to come in and save the day before you at least treat me like a grown man? Wouldn't there be some part of you that would want to bow up a little bit? Well, if you're so tough, king, you read what it says. He doesn't do any of that. Doesn't rebuke him for his insults or his racism. He doesn't rebuke him for his tone. Doesn't remind him of all of his years of service. 
he, uh, he eventually says to Daniel, I'll give you presents if you do it. <laughs> like, I'll give you some nice clothes and some money. And in Daniel's response to all of this, you see simultaneously both his age, which I think gives us some of his perspective, but, but also just his wisdom. So in verse 17, he says to Belshazzar, keep your gifts or give them to someone else. I'll tell you what it means. He's like, I don't need your money, king. I'm not interested in these shiny things. I don't need any more position. I don't need any more of this fancy stuff, but I'll tell you what it means. And then from there, he doesn't stick it to the king, doesn't twist the knife, and he also doesn't get uncomfortable and, and try to soften the blow or, or spin it. He just tells him what the words say, and he tells them what the words mean. So verse 26 and 28. He says... The words are mene, mene, tekel, and parson. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You've been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. That would be frightening, right? Imagine a hand writes on a wall and some old dude comes in and says, it means you haven't measured up. You didn't cut it. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Persians. The Medes and the Persians. While this party is happening, Darius the Mede and all of his boys are outside the city digging. And this is just another one of those beautiful instances where history confirms the scriptures as it has over and over and over again. See, part of the reason that Belshazzar thought he was so safe was because they had 100-foot-tall walls. And there's a whole section of the walls that were built right on top of the Euphrates River, which, if you're unaware, is a big river. Darius and his crew, while all of this party is going on and the city's confused and in fear, uh, they dig, they pile, they dam, and they divert the Euphrates River enough to begin lowering the water level. And after enough time goes by, the water got low enough that they could slip in underneath the wall, likely in some kind of a drainage ditch or, you know, some kind of drainage t tunnel tub. So while this interaction is going on between Daniel and Belshazzar, Darius and the Medes are literally in the city of Babylon killing people, slaughtering people. And shortly after this conversation happens, soldiers break into the room. Belshazzar is killed that night by Darius the Mede. Pride blinds you to what's really going on. Pride blinds you to who you really are and what will truly give you safety and significance. I think what makes Daniel so special here isn't that he never thought of himself. Sometimes you'll hear this kind of Baptist-y turn of phrase, and maybe it's right, I don't know. I don't like it, though, um, where people say, like, Humility uh, isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You ever heard that, like, Baptist, we do turns of phrases stuff? And so it's not that you're supposed to think you're bad. You're just not supposed to think of yourself at all. And I think that, I think that misses it. We don't get an impression that Daniel just never can thought about himself, or I, I don't think the Christian life can be lived. I don't know, like you're a passenger on somebody else's plane, and you just don't have any opinions or thoughts or inputs or any of that kind of stuff. I, I think the, the magic of Daniel 
And it's not that he just didn't care, right? He's, I don't know, turned to 85, bought a motorcycle, and is not wearing a helmet because I've lived my life. Who cares? You know, I don't, I don't think he's just throwing caution to the wind. I think Daniel knew that no king would ever make him safe or significant. 40 years, you guys, like, he had done it all. They're never going to say what I need to hear. They're never going to, and even if I go home, it won't be what I thought it would be. It, it, wasn't that, it wasn't that Daniel had given up or that he had underachieved. It's not that he thought about himself less. I think he just thought of himself soberly. He knew who he was. And more importantly, he knew who God was. Years of faithful obedience in exile, years of using his gifts to build the church, years of praying had drawn him near to the heart of God. And Daniel knew, and by knew, I mean like it was true in his bones, not just in his brains. He knew what we longed to know. The, the secret of the humble heart is knowing our infinite value as God's children and our eternal security in his hands. I promise you that you cannot say no to pride in the sense of just stop it. Like, just say no is not a good solution, not a workable solution to your pride. If you're married, you know this because if you go to marriage counseling and you're like, we yell at each other and we fight a lot. And the marriage counselor says, have you thought about stopping it? Have you thought about not fighting anymore? And you're just like, whoa. Really, that's it. Just stop it. Fantastic. I mean, haven't you experienced when you know you shouldn't do something and it's like something just rolls right over that thought or, you know, that sin or that desire. It's like waving at, at your Bible verse as it's storming through your life. Like, that's very nice. Hello. And then train wrecks your life. If only it were easy to just say, stop it. Talk to an addict. I'm really struggling with alcohol. Well, have you considered not drinking anymore? Your brain is not strong enough to rein in that monster of pride that can so easily devour you. You, have, you don't say no to pride. You have to see what's underneath that and find something good, true, and beautiful to give you what you were made for. The human heart will be restless until it finds its safety and significance in God. The kings of Babylon showed us this over and over and over again. Will we listen? Will we listen? If you're the person walking around just thinking that you're the exception, maybe you're on your sixth job, and you get the same feedback from every boss, and every time it's the, the company that's a problem. If there's something that you've had friends telling you for a long time, a spouse has been telling you for a long time, those close to you have been telling you for a long time, and your response is always to justify it, or why that other person is the problem. Like you've been warned. We've seen it play out over and over and over again. The, the answer, though, isn't to just say, I'm going to stop that. It's to find a better answer to your soul's worth, and safety. And so, football seasons, we don't have another week without football until like February. Amen. Thanks be to God. Nope, just me. Amen. I see that hand, sister. And so, I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about football, and it made me think about the end zone verse. You know, the verse we're about to see it every Sunday in the end zone. You all know the verse we're talking about? Anybody? 
John 3.16. John 3.16, super familiar verse for a reason. John 3.16 and 17. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. So, especially if you have children, how must you feel about something if you would give your kid for it? How important, valuable must something be to you if you would trade your only boy for it? If you don't have a child, how valuable or important would something have to be for you that you would give your own life for it? If you're here this morning and you're just not sure you're worth much, your mistakes are too great, or what you've done is you've gone too far, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ It's God's declaration to the universe of how he longs to gather you up and bring you home. Into your doubts and your fears and your insecurities, God gives you his son as overwhelming, undeniable, objective evidence that you matter, you are significant, and you are loved. The place that he longs to bring you isn't a place where you no longer matter, you no longer have desires. It's a place where you have particular gifts, a particular mission. It's a place where you'll see how much you truly do matter. I believe the human soul will never feel the full weight of its own significance until we see the beauty and agony of Christ crucified for us and Christ raised for us. The song's out of season, but it's still true. The old Christmas song reminds us, long lay the world and sin and error pining, till he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. How much must your soul be worth? How much must God love you that he would give his one and only son for you? You are valuable to God, and you are loved by God. And if you're unsure, look to the advent of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. This is the only antidote to pride, This is the only road to clear eyes where you can see the world around you, a heart that's steady and strong and confident. To our need of safety, God, or secure significance, God gives us his son. To our need for safety, God promises us eternal life. You see how clearly, listen, y'all, I'm pro-America and pro-politics. It's important. But do you see in the book of Daniel the promise that empires rise and empires fall? And in this case, overnight, how fast it can happen. If your hope is in any nation, any man, you've been warned. Nations rise, nations fall. Empires rise, empires fall. For 2,000 years, the kingdom of God has pushed back the forces of darkness in this world. The gates of hell will never overcome it. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom that, is, that we're promised is eternal that cannot be conquered, that will not fall. 
in the face of kings and rulers and a world gone absolutely crazy, we stand as the people of God. If you want to know your worth, look to Christ. And if you want to feel his protection and provision, come to Christ and give your allegiance to the kingdom of God. So I want to close with one last verse. Some of the last words Daniel said to Belshazzar before Belshazzar would be murdered in his own throne area. So he says to the king in verse 22, he's talking of the previous king. He says, you're his successor, Belshazzar. You knew all of this, yet you have not humbled yourself. You watched what happened. You saw the way he wandered around. You've read the history, but you didn't learn. So if, if you're here this morning, I just want to say real clearly, you know what will happen if you build your life on pride. You've been warned. You have no excuse. No longer can you say, I didn't know what would happen if I went down this road. You know what will happen. If you build your life on your pride, on your self-reliance, you will bring destruction to your life and the lives of those around you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you're here, you also know God has made a way for you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you will humble yourself and come to Jesus, he has endless grace for you. He can heal you of your pride, show you the worth of your soul, and take you to a place of safety where you can say, the lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. So, come to Christ. Be saved forever and be part today of a never-ending eternal kingdom that can never be conquered. So every week we come to root ourselves in this hope and remind ourselves of what's true and why we know we're loved. And so we remember the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread. He thanked God for it and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this. Remember what I've done for you. If you want to know whether or not you're loved, whether or not you're safe, remember the body of Christ was broken for you and the blood of Christ was shed for you. That's the promise and that's, that's the hope. What will make us feel our significance, our worth, our safety? It's the very presence of Christ in us, strengthening us, empowering us to stand in a world gone mad. And so our tradition is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you don't believe what this meal represents, there's no sense in you participating in it. Uh, I would ask you, um, how is your life working for you? How is your pride working for you? Is that taking you places that you're pleased with? Uh, and ed eventually it won't. And if that's this morning, then I would say come to Christ. Uh, come and trust him. What will you do with a God that loves you this much and that has displayed it to you through the blood of his own son? Um, there'll be folks up front afterwards that would love to talk to you about that and prepare you to take communion in the weeks to come. I'll pray for us and Christians. Let's come remember our hope together. Let's pray. Father, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Uh, we praise you that uh, you are patient with us. You know that life is hard for us and, and you know that we are a stubborn, proud people and you continually woo us and 
I pray that you would open our ears to hear you speaking and grant us faith and courage to follow you. Make us a people who are proud or humble, Lord, um, who are skeptical of that voice of pride inside of us. Uh, may we be a sober people um, who know we don't know best, but know that you love us, and so that I pray that love would compel us to trust you and follow you. In our, our last few minutes together, Lord, uh, you know how difficult this is for us. Um, I wish it were different. So I just ask that you would open up our eyes, enliven our bodies and senses, uh, that we would really experience your presence. Um, we would experience your love, and that would, uh, that would empower us, encourage us, motivate us to take a step of faith uh, today, this week, um, to trust you, to listen to you, obey you, and follow you. So we need help, God. Uh, we trust that you are eager to do so. So in your mercy, hear our prayers and come be with us. We love you, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.